The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. When Trish and I were living in St. Louis and I was in seminary, my good friend Joe got married in Lincoln, Nebraska. We didn't have any kids at the time, so we packed up our two dogs and we hooked up our pop-up camper and we made a track to Lincoln, Nebraska. When we got there, it was extremely hot. Um, We pulled into the campground, we put up the pop-up camper, we plugged it in, the electricity, the the air conditioning started going so it could cool down the camper. And then uh, as soon as that was up, we were dripping with sweat, and so we headed for the lake. And went towards the lake, and I got in, and Trisha wasn't getting in, but the dogs followed behind me. They usually love the water, but for some reason they wouldn't get in. And and I tried to encourage them, come on, guys, come in the water, come in the water, but they wouldn't, which was very odd, so didn't think much more of it. We took the dogs back to the air-conditioned camper, uh, put them in their kennels, and we headed out to the rehearsal. And as we were headed out to the rehearsal, we were driving around to the other side of the lake where there was an entrance to the beach. And we had a little extra time, so we decided to explore and see what that beach looked like. And as we drove in, there was this big sign that said, beach closed due to toxic algae. (laughs) Toxic algae. Does that happen in Wisconsin? It does. Okay. I have never seen a sign that says toxic algae. So now I know my dogs didn't come in the water, but signs are important, aren't they? And I wish there was a sign on the other side of the lake because that would have been really helpful for me. But signs are very important, whether it says toxic algae, don't swim here, or whether it says sharp curve ahead, or whether it says stop or dead end. Signs are very important. I don't know about you, but if I'm driving around and I don't have a GPS and I'm looking for streets and the street sign is covered up with a tree, you ever have that happen? I get angry, like, what's wrong with this city? What's wrong with that tree? Because I can't identify the street. Signs help us to identify things. Today, we're going to see the importance of signs and God's gift to give us signs that we might identify Jesus as the true Messiah and true Savior. This is our last week in the study of Jonah, and we're going to finish our study in Jonah by turning to Matthew. So if you would please turn to Matthew chapter 12, it's page uh, 817 in the Red Bible, page 1172 in the Children's Bible. Next week, we're going to start a series on the book of Philippians, which uh, is a book about joy in the midst of every circumstance in life, joy in Christ. It's a book that I could certainly use and I I'm hoping you can as well, and so we're excited to dig into that. But today, we are finishing up Jonah in the Gospel of Matthew. And we are going to see a teaching of Jesus in which he refers to Jonah. And we're reminded that the book of Jonah is both a warning to the religious and a source of comfort to the irreligious. So let's read together Matthew chapter 12. We'll start in verse 38 and read through verse 41. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Let's pray. Lord God, we come here this morning at different stages in our spiritual journey. Some of us have been given the grace of a strong confidence in Jesus as our Messiah. Some of us are here asking questions, wondering, God, do you really exist? What hope is there for me? Lord, I pray that wherever we are in this journey, that you would speak to us today through your word and remind us of the glory of the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. I once heard a preacher say there are two lies that Satan propagates. The first is that you are too bad for Jesus to save you. The second is that you are too good to need Jesus to save you. I think all of us in our hearts fall off one side or the other. Either we think, you know, I'm such a good person. I'm such a loyal person. I'm such a a wonderful person. God is kind of lucky to have me. And we fall off the side of thinking, you know what? I'm so good. I don't need God to save me. But then there's the other side. There's the side in which people think I'm worthless. There's nothing good in me. I am I have no value to God or to anybody. I'm too awful. There is no way God would save someone like me. The book of Jonah confronts both of those lies. It speaks the truth of the gospel over both of them. Jesus will remind us that the true and historical story of Jonah both confronts those that believe that they are too good to need saving, but also comforts those that believe they are too bad to get saving. Today, in Matthew 12, Jesus confronts religious unbelievers. He comforts unreligious believers and points all of us to the sign of Jonah. Let's start with religious unbelievers. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? But look in Matthew 12, verse 38. Jesus, or we read, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus. Let's pause there. What are scribes and Pharisees? Well, scribes were these expert teachers in the Mosaic law, in the Old Testament. They would also hand, they would often handle the difficult questions of the Old Testament and prescribe how it should be applied. One of the most famous ways they did this was in the laws about the Sabbath. And so they would take the Sabbath law from the Old Testament, which is a good law, and that they would prescribe all of these ways that you can or cannot break the Sabbath. And so they would tell you how far you can walk without working on the Sabbath, what you can carry, what you can't carry. And while their intention may have started very good, they did this to the detriment of the faith because it reduced our faith to an external formalism in which you would judge how you were right with God. They were 
involved in the Sanhedrin, the scribes, and so that was the governing religious body. And so these guys were religious guys. Think of these as Bible scholars or seminary professors. This is who the scribes were. Jesus also mentions the Pharisees. These were a layman's fellowship of conservative Jews. They were characterized as being obedient to the law and all of these extra commands that the scribes gave. Their term Pharisee came from the word paras, which means to separate. And so they would separate from the general public to pursue a holy and untainted life. Their pursuit became mechanical and external. If the scribes were seminary professors, you might say that the Pharisees would be modern day conservative evangelical Christians. These were the the people that Jesus was talking to. They were the leading religious leaders of the day. And so here we read, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You know, we look at their request for a sign and, and maybe we say, you know, I've made that request. I've asked God for a sign. Why does Jesus respond so harshly? Why does he say you are an evil and adulterous generation for asking for a sign? Well, as we saw, the the scribes and the Pharisees were fluent in the Old Testament. Many of them had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized. Certainly the rest, the prophets and such, they, they knew quite fluently. And in the Old Testament scriptures, there were hundreds and hundreds of prophecies of who the Christ, who the Messiah would be when he comes. And it was unmistakable. It were signs that only the Son of God could fulfill. Just earlier in this chapter, we see in verse 14 that Jesus heals a man who had been with a lame hand. This should have spurred the Pharisees and the scribes on the faith. They should have placed their trust in Jesus. But instead, we read in verse 14 that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. We get to verse 22. And we read, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Can this be the Messiah? Can this be the Christ? They saw the sign and the answer is yes. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Jesus has already given the religious leaders every reason to believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. The scribes and the Pharisees do not need additional signs. They need to see the signs that Jesus has already given and believe in him as the Lord. You know, it's interesting. We see a contrast to this in just the chapter prior in Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist is in prison. And he sends his disciples to Jesus. And he tells them to ask this. They go to him and they say, are you the one who is to come? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus said something very, very interesting. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, 
and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. What an interesting response. Why didn't Jesus just say, yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the Christ. Yes, I am the Son of God. Well, it's because anybody could do that, right? And many people have done that. And people are still doing that. So how do you know Jesus is the authentic Messiah? How do you know he is the genuine article? Well, it's only if he gives signs that nobody else could possibly do. See, Jesus says, don't look merely to my words, but look to my signs and know that I am the one who was and is to come. You know, these religious leaders continually rejected Jesus, not because the signs were not clear, but because they didn't want him to be their Lord. These people had a religious heritage. They were blessed with great religious resources and great religious knowledge, but they lacked one thing faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't believe. It may seem odd to us that people could be so religious but not believe in Jesus, but it has happened throughout the history of the church and it is even prevalent today. John Wesley was the 15th child. 15th. (laughs) Wow. 15th child of the Reverend Samuel Wesley. He and his siblings, including his brother Charles, who later became a famous hymn writer, were brought up in a Christian home with a godly mother, Susanna. John went on to Oxford University, where he continued to be religiously devout and encouraged others to be so. At Oxford, uh, John and his brother Charles joined with others to form the Holy Club. All right. How many of you were in the Holy Club in college? Anybody? You were? Hey, good. That wasn't in my fraternity house. But anyways, the Holy Club. And their aim was to obey the Ten Commandments and observe the religious rituals of the church. His father later encouraged him to go into ministry. And so in 1730, he started a prison ministry. They realized his zeal. And he was sent as an evangelist to the American Indians in Savannah, Georgia. If anybody... Had to be, could have been confident in their own religion, it was Wesley. After all, he was a missionary to Indians. He was an Anglican priest. He had done open-air evangelism. He'd done prison ministry. His personal spiritual habits, including reading the Bible and regular prayer, were devout. He was sensitive to sin and tried to do what is right and holy. However, none of these gave him peace in his soul. He continued to ask if he was right with God, if he was saved, if he was going to heaven. And these questions plagued him. He sought out help from a number of pastors and other people. And finally, he and his brother, John and Charles, came under the influence of a Moravian called Peter Bowler, who emphasized the truth of Scripture and the need for a personal experience of the work of the Holy Spirit. On that fateful day, that breakthrough came Wednesday, May 24th, 1738. And Wesley writes this about his experience. He said, In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society of Aldersgate Street, London, where someone was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. 
about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the hearts of a person through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. An assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John later mentioned that on his missionary journey that he went to Georgia to convert the Indians, he discovered that he himself was unconverted. You see, Wesley, for many years, was a religious unbeliever. The Israelites in Jonah's day, many of them were religious unbelievers. The Israelites in Jesus' day, many of them were religious unbelievers. The many people in Green Bay, many people in Green Bay are religious unbelievers. Maybe even you are a religious unbeliever. George Barna had a poll and uh, it showed that the largest percent of adults who are, quote, notional Christians, that is those who consider themselves to be Christians but are not born again, are found in Massachusetts and Wisconsin. Those that would say, I'm religious, I'm a Christian, but I'm not born again. Now, you may say, what is the big deal? You know, in my denomination growing up, we never used that term born again. We never used the term being saved or things like that. So what if we don't use that terminology? Is it really that big of a deal? Well, the only problem with that is Jesus. That's a pretty big problem. And Jesus says this. He says to a religious man, to a Pharisee, To Nicodemus, he says, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. This is the biggest obstacle to the gospel in Northeast Wisconsin, I believe. Not irreligion, but religion. Matter of fact, the first sermon series we had uh, at Jacob's Well, you can go back and listen to it. The sermon series was in Galatians, and it was called Freedom from Religion because so many people look to their religious heritage, their religious pedigree to give them safety and security instead of looking to Christ. Earlier in the book of Matthew, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says some very chilling words. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, away from me, I never knew you. This is a chilling remark by Christ. Who or what do you trust in for your salvation? You know, I think this is particularly applicable to teenage kids. You may have grown up in the church, which is a great blessing from God. You may have memorized many verses and got many badges, which is wonderful. You may have grown up in a house where your parents love the Lord. That is a tremendous blessing from God. But all of it is worth nothing unless you believe Jesus is your Savior. And so we see Jesus confronts religious unbelievers to shake them from their security that they might trust in him for their salvation. But we also see that Jesus shows hope for unreligious believers. In verse 41, Jesus says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation 
and condemn it. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the Jewish elite. He's speaking to people who are so proud of their Israelite heritage. They are so, they are so dependent on the fact that they are literal descendants of Abraham, that they are children of Abraham. These are people who thought they were a superior nation and judged all the Gentiles, which are the non-Jews, thinking of them as dirty and worthless. And yet Jesus says on the judgment day, the table will be turned and they will stand in judgment of you. In verse 42, if you continue on, it says this, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, she went up to visit Solomon. Uh, she was a pagan woman when she went up. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. This would have infuriated the Jews. These Gentiles who they detest would be the ones that would be standing in judgment of them. They would stand condemning them, maybe not vocally, but with having the one thing that the Israelites did not have. Look at verse 41 again. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with the generation and condemn it. Why will they condemn it? For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. They stand in judgment because they had a heart of repentance. Verse 42, the queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this great generation and condemn it. Why? For she came from the ends of the earth. She didn't send a messenger. She shut down her authority over her kingdom for weeks, maybe months, and traveled to Israel. And after her time there, we read that, that she professes faith. She says, blessed be the Lord your God who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king that you may execute justice and righteousness. And so she stands in judgment because of her faith. You see, the queen of Sheba, the Ninevites had something that the Israelites didn't have. Repentance and faith. The Ninevites and the queen did not have biblical scholars like the Israelites. The Ninevites and the queen did not have biblical knowledge like the Israelites. The Ninevites and the queen probably did not have moral uprightness like the Ninevite, the Israelites. The Ninevites and the queen did not have a religious history or the temple of the living God like the Israelites. But the Ninevites and the queen had one thing that the Israelites did not. Repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus goes even a step further. There's a parallel account in Luke chapter 11 where this story is retold. And there are certain details that are included there that aren't included here. And what's interesting is that in that passage, it says, And behold, a greater than Solomon, a greater than Jonah is here. You know, Nineveh got a rebellious, non-miracle working prophet who preached just a small message of God's redemption. And the whole city repented and trusted in God. The Queen of Sheba got King Solomon, who, while he was wise and good, ended up running away from God in the end. But Israel was getting something far greater than Jonah, something far greater than Solomon. They were getting Jonah's Lord. They were getting Solomon's God in the flesh right before them. You see, the Queen and the Ninevites received God's verbal message. But these Pharisees and scribes saw God's message. The word become flesh. The message of God in a person. And they wanted 
another sign. You see, salvation isn't on what you know, but it's who you believe in. Karl Barth was born May 10th, 1886. He's a Swiss theologian and a very important Christian theologian in the 20th century. He was a pastor, but also a theologian, and he wrote together 13 volumes, this magnum opus entitled Church Dogmatics. Sounds like a page turner. It was widely regarded as the most important theological work of the time, and it represented Karl Barth's achievement as a theologian. He published 13 volumes, over 6 million words. After 12 of the 13 volumes were completed, Karl Barth was being interviewed by a reporter who wanted a brief summary of his 12 thick volumes of Christian doctrine. Can you imagine? I mean, I just picture it thinking how funny this might look. A guy with a little notebook saying, can you summarize those 12 volumes for me? And Karl Barth said this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. You know, you might be here today and you have no religious heritage, or you may say, you know what? I don't know much about the Bible. I don't know hardly anything about the Bible. I don't know where Matthew is, who Matthew is, who Jonah is, where Jonah is in the Bible. I don't know any of that stuff. But what we see is that God's word, although it is good gift to us, And although it has deep truths, it comes with a very simple message. That Jesus loves you. Do you believe that? I don't mean surface level Sunday school. Jesus loves the little children. But do you believe it in the depth of your soul? That Jesus loves you. That, that he doesn't just put up with you. That, that Jesus doesn't just want you to obey. But Jesus loves you. More than you could ever imagine. This is the simple, glorious truth of the gospel. That Christ loved us so much. That he took on your sin to die for you. That he could be with you for all eternity. Jesus loves you. This I know for the Bible tells me so. This is a wonderful message. You do not need to have the Old Testament memorized or the new. You need to know this. Jesus loves you. You need to look to Christ. So Jesus gives us a sign to remind us of this. He gives us an ultimate sign, the sign of Jonah. Again, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, if you've been here the past, this over the summer, you've, you know Jonah. And so what would be the sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, verse 40, Jesus tells us, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jonah was swallowed by a fish for three days. Jesus 
was swallowed up by the grave for three days. Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish. Jesus spent three days in hell. Jonah, after three days, was spit up and given new life. Jesus, after three days, was resurrected to give you and me new life. You know, there are many parallels between Jesus and Jonah, but Jonah, but Jesus is greater than Jonah. Unlike Jonah, Jesus' death wasn't due to his own rebellion, but due to our rebellion. Unlike Jonah, Jesus didn't die and raise again to proclaim God's judgment, but he died to satisfy God's judgment. Unlike Jonah, Jesus didn't just come to declare salvation, but to secure our salvation. How do we know Jesus is Lord? You know, unlike Muhammad, unlike Confucius, you cannot visit the grave of Jesus. It does not exist. He's alive. And the evidence is overwhelming. You see, after Christ's resurrection, over 500 people saw the resurrected Christ. The Jewish historian Josephus records this historical fact that Christ raised from the dead. The resurrection turned scared, weasley little disciples into bold and courageous men that went forth and proclaimed the sign of Jonah that Jesus has raised from the dead. If you are a sign chaser like me, if you say, God, prove yourself to me according to my signs. If you say, God, give me the sign that you exist. Give me a sign that you care. Answer my prayer request just the way I want. If you are a sign chaser and you are dismayed by the way that life has turned out, that you're not as prosperous as you thought you would be, or life isn't as easy as you hoped it would be. If you have wished that you could have been there to see Jesus walking on the water, healing the lame, If you said, if I could have seen it, then I would believe. What we realize in this passage is that the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba had far fewer signs than we do. As a matter of fact, we have more signs than even the Israelites of the time. We read of all these miraculous signs proving Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ. These are all signs of Jesus' divinity, but they don't compare to the greatest sign, the sign of Jonah. The resurrection of Christ. This week I saw a sign online. It was for Newcastle Tramway Authority. I'm guessing it was a subway or something like that or a above ground train. And it posted this sign saying, touching wires causes instant death. And then below it, it says $200 fine. Talking about adding insult to injury, right? Like, you're dead, and they fine you. I mean, only the government can do that, right? Anyways, it's a sign that shouldn't be ignored, right? Jesus Christ gives us a sign, the sign of Jonah. It is a sign that we must not ignore. We must believe in the sign of Jonah. Believe that Christ raised from the dead is the foundation of our faith. It is the foundation of our hope. Because if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are foolish for being here today. The resurrection of Christ proved that Jesus is our only hope over death. That Jesus is our Messiah. That he is Savior of the world. Do you believe the sign of Jonah? Let me end with this story. 
I've shared it before, I think, so it may be familiar. But there's a story of two boats in a shipping panel, in a shipping channel, and they're headed towards one another. And boat number one flashes a signal assigned to boat number two, and it says, we are on a collision course. Turn your boat 10 degrees to the north. Well, boat number two signals back and says, yes, we are on a collision course. Turn your boat 10 degrees to the south. Boat one signals back again and says, I am an admiral in Her Majesty's Navy. I'm telling you to turn your boat 10 degrees north. Boat number two signs back and says, and I am a seaman, second class, and I am telling you, turn your boat 10 degrees south. By this time, the admiral is furious. And he flashes back the sign. I repeat, I am an admiral in Her Majesty's Navy, and I am commanding you to turn your boat 10 degrees north. I am a battleship. And the second boat returned a signal that said, and I am commanding you to turn your boat 10 degrees south. I am a lighthouse. Jesus has given us a sign, the sign of Jonah. And we so often want to chart our own course. We want to go our own way. We don't want to heed the sign. We don't want to heed the signal. But if we do that, it leads to our own destruction. You know, something Christ alludes to in this passage is that every one of us will be raised from the dead. Every one of us will sit before God when we die. And the question is, when you are there, will the Ninevites, will the Queen of Sheba stand in judgment of you because of their repentance and faith? Or have you looked to the sign of Jonah? Have you looked to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and known that joy and that peace and that stillness that comes with not looking to your own righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ purchased for you at the cross and applied to you today? This is the story of Jonah, that we have a gracious God that loves us so much that he sent the great, greater Jonah to rescue us from certain death. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for giving us a sign, for giving us a great sign. We confess that oftentimes we want more signs, but all we need to do is look to the great sign, the sign of Jonah, the resurrection of Christ. That is all the sign that we need to know that you love us, that you care for us, that Christ is our Savior, that he is the Messiah, and he has come to rescue us, that he loves us with an unfailing, overwhelming love. Thank you for giving us that sign and accomplishing our salvation at the cross. Lord, as we turn to the Lord's Supper, we're reminded that this sign came at great cost, that it came at the cost of your own blood shed for us. That while Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, you were three days in hell, that we might never know it, that we might only know you and your goodness for all eternity. And we are so thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.